Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen, amen, amen. Amen, church. Good to see you this morning. He is worthy. You may have a seat. Grab your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be at. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So you can go and grab your Bibles and get there. We're continuing our series called Cultural Church. Why do we call it Cultural Church? Well, I'm glad you asked. What kind of church are we going to be? As we look throughout history, there's only two paths a church takes. One that's influenced by the culture, or one who influences the culture. Thank you, Jenny. And so that's what we're looking at. In 1 Timothy, we see that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to young Timothy. And 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us exactly why. It's to correct conduct within the church, which is God's household. And we see conduct that's being corrected both collectively and individually. What does that mean? Both as a church gathers for corporate worship and as they scatter throughout the week. There's conduct that's being corrected. And so the conduct that we're going to see today that's being corrected or encouraged is more individually based as a church So if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Chasing Contentment. Chasing Contentment. And before we get to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Philippians 4 verse 12 gives us some insight when it comes to contentment. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the church in Philippi. He says, I know how to make do with a little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. So there's a secret in finding contentment, which shows why many are chasing contentment, and that contentment seems to be continually elusive. Maybe we don't use the word contentment. We may use fulfilled or happy. And so many of us are trying to find fulfillment or have happy. And I think through my own progression of my life from a childhood of how I pursued contentment, chase contentment. I remember, you know, kid of the 80s, right? When I got that Nintendo, that was the thing. All life was finally in order. Things were perfect. And I had all that I would ever need until that game got old and I wanted the next thing, right? As I got older, I tried to find contentment in relationships, whether it's friendships, or other relationships, girlfriends. And it continued to evolve. That would not fulfill. I would be left discontent. Well then, like many, I struggled in my teens into young adulthood. So I looked for contentment in alcohol, in drug use. Eventually my job. I thought, finally, if I had this job, finally I would be content. And those things continually fall short. Which makes sense. The wisest man who ever lived, that's King Solomon, wrote in Ecclesiastes 1. He says, I have seen all things that are done under the sun and found everything to be futile or worthless. A pursuit of the wind. And we see biblical contentment as we see this morning really means satisfied. Just satisfied. Or many say, you know, I'm I'm good. I'm just good. How do we find that? As I look at Apostle Paul's statement, 
in Philippians 4, that contentment, that secret that he's found is one that I desire to find. How about you? Have you found true contentment or we continue to chase it? I don't know about you, but my contentment seems to shift based on the day. Sometimes I'm just not content. Maybe even the hour. But I desire to find the secret and just hang and live in that contentment. This contentment is not based on any of the excesses or circumstances. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This leads us to 1 Timothy 6. And we're starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start in verse 1. It says, All who are under the yoke of slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. And once again, we see how the gospel changes how we relate to one another despite relationship dynamics. And here, we can draw from this an encouragement. That is a calling to be content with your work and with those whom you work for. It's easy, right? Being content with where you work, who you work for. And there, as Christians, we see this. We see that Christians are to respect their masters, or maybe in our case, bosses, despite their worthiness of respect. I've worked for a lot of supervisors, a lot of bosses who are desperately not worthy of my respect. But that's not what this says. It's not based on their worthiness. It's based on the Christ who we represent. Also known, a little church talk, Christianese, our witness, the witness we have. Jesus, one of his last phrases, statements, while walking this earth before he ascended, was in Acts 1 verse 8. He tells his followers, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's where they were at, in all Judea and Samaria, that's as they go, and all to the end of the earth. So as we live, as the Lord leads, where our feet take us, we're to be witnesses, representatives, ambassadors for Jesus. So let me ask you this. Are your words and your work damaging your witness in your workplace? Just let that sink in for a minute. If we're really honest with ourselves. The point of this passage and what we see drawn here is it's the same principle. The witness we have, whether it's in the workplace, applies to any area and every area of our life. How about your home? How about your homeroom, students? How about your hobbies? See, Lord, Jesus as Lord, influences every aspect of our lives. We surrender all to Jesus. See, in our Western context, I think we have this compartmentalizing concept. Jesus gets my Sunday morning from about 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., unless Josh goes long, right? Which never happens, I know. All of your life. And the point of this passage we see, and the point of the whole Bible 
is that you're to be known as a Christian. By what we say and what we show. Notice that it says that the God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. This is why. It's because of who we represent. There's no closet Christians. It cracks me up. So we try to do a good job with some of our church swag. You know what I'm saying? It's at the connections table. We want to equip you to some good church swag. We got some car stickers. I think they're pretty nice. But it's funny. Many people will not put a church car sticker on, not because it's, they don't like it necessarily, because you drive like crazy people. That's why. So like, you know what? I'm not going to damage Christ's witness because I don't want, because I drive like a maniac. But here's a revolutionary concept. How about drive better? I'm just saying. I know it's crazy. But is our witness representing Christ well in everything we do? And what we see here, you respect and serve those in authority over you because of your respect and your service for Jesus. Ephesians 6 verse 7 changed how I viewed every aspect of my work many years ago. Many of you know I used to be in the fire service as a firefighter for most of my adult life, 15 years. But this changed how I viewed my work, working more out of worship. It says this, Ephesians 6, 7. says, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. So everything you do, serve as to the Lord and not to people. That will completely change how we work because ultimately who we're working for i know it feels like you're working for your boss i know that doesn't feel great most every day but remember it's ultimately you're serving the lord jesus and representing him it changes how we work and notice it makes a different uh, it differentiates between non-believing and believing masters it says if you have a believing master don't be disrespectful but serve even better how much more should you serve them And the gospel was making a lot of traction in the first century church through a lot of areas. And so what the gospel was doing, many people were coming to faith from many different social standings and backgrounds. And so it was changing dynamics of how people were relating to each other because of the gospel. It's been said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so what we were seeing here as two groups of people were being brought together who would normally have no interaction outside of the slave-master relationship. But now they were called to come together in community and unity. And so this is what we do. There are physical and social distinctives that we, in our humanness, drift towards elevating or segregating. The gospel levels the playing field to get rid of our unbiblical bias in distinctive making. The gospel brings us all into an equal standing before a holy God. That is, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, all helplessly stuck in our sin and could do nothing about it. That's why Jesus stepped in to pay the price for our sin, because we could not. And the price for our sin was death, the eternal death. Forever separated from God. That's what we deserve. That's what we were owed. Yet Jesus stepped in and took our place. Because God requires perfection. And I don't know about you, but I haven't been perfect for one hour this morning. Versus the entire life. That God's standard because he's righteous, he's holy, and we are not. But Jesus, living the perfect 
life. Paying the price that we could not pay. Dying on the cross, taking your place and my place. Rising again, conquering sin and death forever. So that anyone and everyone, despite your social standing, your backgrounds, your fears, your failures, your flaws, everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for salvation, for the forgiveness and cleansing from every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, and future, will be saved. By faith alone in Christ alone. This brings us all onto level playing ground. And because of Jesus, we're all declared children of God. That relationship that we were made to have in the first place. Galatians 3 says it like this. Verse 27. For those of, of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. What does, what does that mean? That's not water baptism that we talk about. That's Water baptism comes after faith and obedience to Christ submerged by water. This baptism is specifically what the Holy Spirit does at the moment you believe. The moment you believe, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, meaning you have been made new, you've been born again, you've been clothed with Christ. And I love this because it harkens back to what the Romans used to do. As a boy would transition to manhood, he would take off the old toga and put on the new toga, a visible representation that he is now a man. So in the same way, the visual distinction is when you're clothed with Christ, you are now different. You're not the old person that used to be. The old Josh Weatherspoon is now dead, and now the new has been alive because of what Christ did, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Everybody tracking there? Because then what it says in Galatians 3, it says, Because of this, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since all are one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean sameness. It means equalness. There's a difference. doesn't mean we're all the same. There's God honoring, God-ordained distinctions, but it doesn't mean we're equal in God's sight. And that's a huge difference. In other words, you're equal in God's sight as God's children because of faith in God's Son, but you still observe God's ordained distinctions in a God-honoring way. Like we see with slaves and masters. Now, I know we've taken, in our history, taken verses like this and ran with them in a biblically wrong way. What we see here is a culture that already has practices in place, but now people are coming to Christ. And so what do we do? We see influences, cultural change by influences, not as a revolt and a violent takeover, but as living as God-honoring Christians in the midst of a chaotic culture. And that's what we see here. There's still the slave-master context, but how do you influence change? It's by looking like Jesus. And so serve as you're serving Jesus. The point here is we don't subvert authority because of the gospel, but rather we submit to authority because of the gospel for God's glory. And he says, teach and encourage these things. James says it, be doers of the word, not hearers only, right? So teach and do these things. And again, we see this command to teach the truth, and to fight what's against false. Which leads us in verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with sound teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with a teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine 
that godliness is a way to material gain. And what we see once again is false teaching and false teachers are damaging and ravaging to the church, causing divisiveness, discouragement, and discontentment through self-centered teaching. You guys heard from Mark Stevens last week, member of our teaching team here. But a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, we talked about false teachers, and he gave a great acronym on how to identify a false teacher. And just so we know, we still have this issue today. 2,000 years later, we still have an issue with false teachers. And just very basic, how do you identify a false teacher? The Bible. I know it sounds crazy, but to know if they're false teaching, you have to know what's true. So it's on you and it's on me to go to the Bible and fact check what they are saying. This is why we have such a strong emphasis on D groups. One, disciple making is the foundation of the church. But in our discipleship groups, we have a strong focus on God's word. And so we desire, the secret's out, we desire every one of you to be in a discipleship group because we've seen so much growth from our discipleship groups. And for those who are, have been in discipleship group, would you amen that? Amen. Transformative. Why? Because we're spending time in God's word. We're not doing anything revolutionary. We're studying the word together in a very specific, detailed way. But Mark Stevens said, how do I identify a false teacher? He uses the acronym FALSE, which I like that. Simple. I like things simple. Simple person. So the F stood for fallacy. Are they teaching something in error? A is add or take away from Scripture. The L is lessening Christ's character. The S is supplementing salvation, meaning faith plus something else. And the E is egocentric. This is a focus on the teacher's desires or the audience that the teacher is teaching. It's a self-centered approach. This will mean they are hypocritical, sensual, overpowering, and or greedy. And this greediness is one of the main aims that we see that Paul is pointing to here. The aiming for material gaining. And this type of false teaching is self-centered and further fuels the desire which we all drift towards. The chasing of contentment through possessions that will never fully please. Which leads us into verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So it begs the question, what is godliness? Quite simply, it's becoming more like Jesus. Would you agree with that? Well, good, I'm glad two of you agree. That's great. We'll keep on going. We'll be here all morning. It's all right. Become more like Jesus. So it begs the question, how do you become more like Jesus? This is going to be crazy. You might want to write this down. Revolutionary. You spend time with Jesus. Isn't this amazing? You want to be more like Jesus? You spend time with Jesus. And here, this is interesting. So this is something at some point every parent, I think, has said, and every child has heard, and yet we constantly forget. You capture the qualities of the company you keep. It's just true. You capture the qualities of the company you keep. You know, many of you know I served in youth ministry for about 10 years. 
And so at least once a year, we'd go on a mission trip with these teenagers. And it's amazing what would happen during the week-long mission trip. You would see these teenagers come slowly over the week transform into pursuing Jesus more, loving Jesus more, serving Jesus more, how they treated one another in a Jesus-centered way. They would change from Monday through Friday. They would change to be more like Jesus in front of my eyes. We call it being on fire for Jesus, right? The new believer just loving Jesus and something happens. You know why they were being changed throughout the week? This is crazy. Because the distractions of the world were taken away and they were focusing on Jesus all day, every day for about five days straight. We'd wake up in the morning, do a devotional. We'd go serve all day in the name of Jesus. Then come back and worship. And after worship, we'd come to the small groups and talk about the day and Jesus-centered. And we'd do that every single day, spending time with Jesus. But the amazing thing is, they would come home just pumped up about Jesus, loving Jesus. Even kids that were raised in church would come to faith in Jesus after spending time with Jesus because they didn't really know Jesus. That's a word for someone. But what would happen the next week after a week back in just to the culture? They would drift back into their way of life before because that same practices of spending time with Jesus didn't stick. How about you? Are you spending time with Jesus? When you've experienced the satisfaction of knowing and being known by Jesus, nothing else will ever satisfy. In other words, Jesus brings contentment, not your junk. Is that too harsh? Not your possessions, not your fine stuff. You guys got some good stuff. Not your junk. Your junk doesn't bring contentment. It is. It's just junk. Let's be honest. This leads us to verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. If Paul was living here, he would say, you won't see a U-Haul following a hearse. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you can't take it with you. Yet we act like we can. Jesus gives such a great parable in Luke 12. He talks about this rich man's field was very productive and yielding. And so he says, this man says, what should I do since I, have, I don't have anywhere to store all my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, if you start talking to yourself, that's an issue. I'll say to myself, I have many goods stored up for many years. I will take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy. Also called the American dream, in case you're wondering. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose Will they be? And he says, this is how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. I think Jesus' parable is a perfect picture of us chasing contentment. Here's the truth. All of your stuff will one day either go to goodwill, to a garage sale, will be given away, or go straight to the garbage. One day, you guys got nice stuff. Those Kira cabinets are nice. That fine china is something. Garbage. One day. The full life that you're chasing will never be satisfied with the abundance of junk. It is only satisfied with the abundance of Jesus. Jesus. He says in John 10, Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. 
So how are we still chasing contentment if we found Christ? Jesus met our most urgent need. I think we need to be reminded of this. The most urgent need we have is eternal life versus eternal death that we have just naturally because of our sin. But he has given it, extended it to everyone who receives it, has it, eternal life with him, secure. At the moment, you believe. I don't mean head knowledge. Man, you guys got some good facts. Many of us have good facts and information. We can talk about Jesus. So did the demons. Do you believe? Has it transferred from your head to your heart and impacted your life? Do you believe it? So Jesus has satisfied the greatest need that everyone has, the need for eternal life. But he also meets your physical needs in your daily life. Now, I wonder if we're content with those things. In verse 8, he says, If we have found food and clothing, we will be content with these. And my question for you, are you content with these? Food and clothing, are you good with that? Are you satisfied and as I was thinking about this, anxiety is stirred by chasing contentment in the excess. Rachel and I have owned two brand new cars in our life, both about 15 to 20 years ago. I never had so much anxiety leaving my car in a parking lot than when I had a brand new car. Now we don't, and I couldn't care less. All the things in it anyway. Anxiety comes from having the excess. At least it can. If you let it, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry. He's talking about stuff. Don't worry about what you'll eat and drink and wear. And the point of that passage is that God will provide because he does provide. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. God provides. He says, don't worry. Then he says this, you have little faith. It's like he knows me because I worry. He says, you have little faith. Seek first the kingdom of God. Of God. This is what we need to see. Is chasing contentment stops where a kingdom first focused starts. Why do you have your stuff? And it comes with the realization that the Lord has given you everything you have. Everything. And so all when I say that, I hear the rebuttal. But I've worked hard for what I have. No doubt. But he's still giving it to you. Think about where you were born. If you were born in America, that's a gift. We take that for granted. There are people who have helped you, whether you realize it or not, to get where you've gotten. You were born with some skills and abilities that you did not cultivate yourself. God has given you what you have. Don't take my word for it. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth and everything in it, that's a lot of stuff, the world and its inhabitants belongs to the Lord. That's everything and you belong to God. Job, after he lost absolutely everything, with the exception of his wife, which was not a blessing. Job 1, if you want to read that. He says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Then he says this, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lost everything, but his faith wasn't shaken. He still worshiped the Lord because the Lord is still the giver 
and he also takes away. But do we trust him in all the madness? Being content in God with what he's given you will strengthen you against the trap of greed. Which leads us to verse 9 and 10. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. William Wilberforce says this, Prosperity hardens the heart. And I say, it can. It can. I had a conversation recently. Someone asked me, is it wrong to want to succeed in my work and to make money? And like any good minister would say, you answer the question with a question, right? You know what Jesus did? Answer questions with questions. I said, it depends. What's driving your desire for success? What's your motives? That matters. Heart posture matters. Is your motive just to be comfortable, succeed, have the American dream? Or is your motive to be good stewards for the glory of God with everything he's given you, possessions, time, resources, to seek first the kingdom of God, to be rich towards God, for God's glory and for others' good? And God isn't against you being comfortable. Like there's two false gospels that are being taught. The prosperity gospel, which says God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and well, just have enough faith, and you'll have these things. It's garbage and heresy. The other version is the poverty gospel. That means you're more holy if you have nothing. That's garbage as well. But here's the point. God doesn't hate money. God hates you idolizing money. Make sense? God doesn't hate your money. He hates you idolizing money. Money's not your God. But yet we treat it like that. So let me ask you this. Let's be honest. I know church isn't any place for honesty, but we're going to try this out. If, like Job, you had everything taken away, would your faith be shaken? Be honest. Would your faith be shaken? If the thing you think about losing shakes your faith. This is an indication your faith may be in the wrong place. Stuff isn't bad. Idolizing your stuff, God hates that. And he will not take it. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6. You cannot serve two masters. And that word serve means slave. It's the same word we see in 1 Timothy 6.1. You cannot be a slave to two masters. Since you will either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. And if you've been alive for any amount of time, you know that money makes a terrible God. But this is what we need to be aware of. Every one of us is serving a master. Every one of us. Who's yours? Is yours affluence? We live in an affluent area. That's chasing contentment in your riches. And I know the pushback. God, I'm not, Josh, I'm not, I'm not rich. The majority of the world's population would beg to differ. I know it doesn't feel rich because everybody's rich. 
So we look at other people to have more riches than us, and it makes us feel not rich. We are rich. Is your master addiction? I think back through my own life, and I struggled through being enslaved, mastered by several and certain addictions that I was looking to for contentment, alcohol, drugs, pornography, sex. Who's your master? Who are you enslaved to? You know it's wrong, and you want to break three, but you continue to go for that for contentment, for security, for comfort, for satisfaction. And Paul, on top of that, we live in a consumeristic culture that fuels the craving to chase contentment. Are you aware of that? Every ad you see is driving you to stir an affection and a need for something you don't need. Christian, you do not have to go around the merry-go-round of chasing contentment because you have found the secret of contentment. Whether you know it or not, and that's why we're here this morning, because I am with you, I need to be reminded. goes back to where we started. What is the secret of contentment? Because this is what I want us to leave with. What is the secret of contentment? We saw in Philippians 4.12 that Paul has learned the secret of contentment. And verse 13 answers it. I am able to do all things through him being Jesus who strengthens me. Jesus is your contentment. If you're trying to find contentment in anything else, you will not find it. There are false gods that we're following. All these other things are false gods. And if we're honest, we have a tendency to worship these false gods. And these false gods make false promises. They will never satisfy. They will never fulfill. I talked about before. They may make you happy. I don't care about your happy. I care about your joy. Because your joy isn't based on your circumstances. Your joy is rooted in Jesus. And so should your contentment be. In him and what he has provided. Do we trust him? Psalm 23 verse 1 tells us, The Lord is my shepherd and I have what I need. That means the Lord is enough. And everything I have because of him is enough. And I ask you, is that enough? Is the Lord enough for you? If everything is to be stripped away, could you still say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Because he's enough. As I was coming, preparing this week, Psalm 63, I've been praying for us for as, a church, as a church. Us collectively and us individually. And I want you to hear these words. Because these words are the words of someone who loves the Lord. This is my prayer for us. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. 
So I'll bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Is that what your heart says? Because I'm telling you, when you've experienced Jesus, this is the echo of our hearts. When you've experienced Jesus, nothing else satisfies. And so if you're feeling discontent with this or that, come back to Jesus as a focus of our faith and the source of contentment and a stopping to our chasing of anything else that will never satisfy. We're going to continue worshiping. And let us continue with the heart of worship, of focusing on Jesus, the center of our faith, the sustainer, the perfecter of our faith, who is present at every moment, in every circumstance. I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're going to worship through singing another song. But as they come up, and as we prepare, I want us to reflect. How is your relationship with Jesus? Do you have one? Is there a disconnect somewhere so you don't feel the presence of Jesus in your life? I'm not content. I don't have joy. Is there a possibility that you've spent so much time doing things for Jesus that you've missed Jesus? Going to church, doing good things in the name of Jesus, and yet have missed Jesus. Here's the good news. At the moment you admit that I desperately need Jesus, I see that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I see that he's done that for me. And I see that I can't clean myself up enough. I've messed up, I've sinned, I've fallen short, I've been a terrible person, but I see that Jesus has covered all that by his death on the cross. And by faith in what he did for me, I am cleansed and now called a child of God. This is the good news of the gospel. You can't work for it, it's been given, it's up to you to receive it. And my question for you, are you going to receive it? And for those who have received it, we need to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel because it impacts every single moment of every single day. As you go into the workplace tomorrow, as difficulties and stresses arrive, God is still sovereign over every aspect of your life. And so our contentment, our securities in him. And I'll about you to buy into that reminder. So we're going to continue worshiping. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. And as we sing, I want you to respond to how God is leading you. Maybe you didn't stand up and singing. If you want to get crazy, raise your hand. You know, nobody's judging you. It's wild. What would it look like if you were to respond how God had you to respond? Maybe you just need to sit there and pray. Maybe you need to kneel out of a posture of your heart and pray. Maybe you need to gather with someone around you and pray. We'll have a prayer team over here. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you, walk alongside you, but you respond to how the Lord's leading and putting on your heart right now. So I'm going to pray for us. 
And we'll continue worshiping together because he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for the encouragement that you give us as we gather as your people before you to gaze upon you, to look upon you, to worship you, Lord. Create a heart in us to where we thirst for you. Remind us that our satisfaction is in you. You satisfy us. Nothing else will. Lord, lead us in a response of worship. Lead us in a life of worship. Lead us as we leave this place to find our contentment, our joy, and our satisfaction in you and you alone. Lord, help us to love you more because you first loved us. Father, we're so grateful for what you're doing in our lives, in this place, in this moment. Lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray this in the name that is above every other name that is the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.